Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. The digitization of money is certainly a popular topic in tech circles these days, with most of it focusing on things like Bitcoin. Uh, but in many ways, money has actually already been digitized for a long time, considering how frequently the movement of money today using credit cards is actually little more than uh, virtual tick marks in multiple accounts facilitated by the internet. But when money goes digital like that, it can also be tracked, uh, and sometimes very precisely. Uh, even Bitcoin, for all the talk of how it's a cash replacement, has its public ledger revealing the basics of every transaction, um, if not who the transaction involves. But the tracking of monetary transactions raises a lot of questions about privacy and surveillance. On top of that, there's definitely been a growing focus on using payment processors as a sort of wedge against activities that the government doesn't like, whether or not they're legal. Uh, public pressure by the U.S. government got payment processors to stop working with WikiLeaks, for example. PayPal is frequently uh, unwilling to work with anyone it deems remotely, even remotely controversial. Uh, an Illinois sheriff recently convinced MasterCard and Visa to stop processing payments for Backpage.com. Stopping payment processors has also become sort of a key front against websites that the copyright industry likes to refer to as rogue or pirate sites as well. Uh, writer and lawyer Sarah Zhang recently wrote up a fascinating four-piece series for The Atlantic that does a really um, amazing job raising these issues and looking at the history of the financial services world as some of the sort of original surveillance experts. Uh, this includes things like lenders doing creepy things, uh, such as the company that would rent you laptops, but would include key logging spyware on those laptops so it could see what you were doing with them, or automobile leases giving the leaseholders the ability to remotely kill your car if you weren't making payments. Um, but of course, not all of this is even new. As Sarah notes in one of the articles, credit bureaus from the 19th century were basically the NSA of their day. Uh, finally, Sarah looked at the current state of regulations in the U.S. today on this issue with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, or the FCRA, as being the main uh, law in this area, and a Supreme Court case in Robbins versus Spokio over whether or not you uh, have to actually show harm from having your privacy violated uh, within this, this kind of area in order to be able to sue. Uh, though her article on that came out prior to the ruling in the case, uh, and that ruling only just came out recently. Uh, today, Sarah is here to talk to us about this series and the issues that it raises. And this is along with our regular co-hosts, Hirsch Reddy and Dennis Yang. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things to discuss and, and to unpack here, but I want to start with the historical element uh, because I thought that was really interesting. And if we just jump into the modern stuff, we might never get to it. Uh, <laughs> and so the, you have, you know, one of the articles is, is the story of kind of the credit bureaus in the 19th century and kind of how they worked. Um, do you want to kind of give us a quick summary of, of sort of what, what they did and kind of how 
creepy and spooky some of it was. Yeah, so in the 19th century, um, so there's there's two kinds of credit bureaus we're talking about. One is the commercial credit bureau. So this is uh, men of trade. And I say men because they didn't really include women. Um, and this is just anyone who, who sells or buys or is a merchant. And as the U.S. got bigger and bigger, uh, these merchants stopped having, you know, interpersonal relationships with each other. So it got very hard to do this, like, distance trading. And that's when sort of this predecessor to a company that's now known as Dun & Bradstreet, um, some listeners may be familiar with them, uh, the earliest predecessor to them was called the Mercantile Agency. And they stepped in and they're like, hey... Something that we could do is we can start collecting information on all of these people and selling that information so that uh, merchants who are trying to decide whether or not to have this commercial relationship with another merchant who lives far away from them, they can know whether that person is credit worthy. So it was a it was kind of an, the earliest form of credit rating in the U.S. Um, and it just didn't exist before. But the way that they assessed credit worthiness was they basically had spies across the country reporting back to the mercantile agencies going, oh, this guy's a loser and he sucks. <laughs> this guy probably has a lot of money and is probably doing well. Uh, people like his family. Um, he's been married for a really long time. Probably good. Like It was stuff like that. It was, I mean, it was terrible information for one thing. Um, the predictive value was awful. Uh, and, um, like it, the scholars who study these records are like, yeah, no, the predictive value is just really bad. If you, you can like track an individual through the ledgers, um, like, a, like one person and their just entire business will fall apart because people keep investing in them or like giving them credit because it's like, oh yeah, uh, mercantile agency says they're fine because <laughs> you know, they're, they're from a good family and they go to church every day and, and it's just like, nope. Turns out this guy was really bad at what he did. Um, and uh, what happened was that it was very invasive. So they would have these spies all across the country, essentially, who were actually often like young lawyers. Like Abraham Lincoln was um, one of these people. So were like, I think, four other U.S. presidents. It was just wow. kind of a, yeah, it was like a white-collar profession, like a low-level white-collar profession. Um, and they would basically report on all these things that today we think are are irrelevant to credit. And one of the reasons why we think it's irrelevant to credit today is because there was legislation in the 20th century to prevent certain stuff from being calculated into your credit score to or like you can't really um like for instance like discrimination um you can't there's there's one thing that got thrown into someone's credit report once um, that he sued over. Uh, this guy, apparently his credit report said that he had left his wife for a prostitute. And uh, so he sued for defamation and actually he lost. So the credit records that were being kept were like really creepy, really invasive, um, had all kinds of prejudicial information in them. And from there, and I'm still talking about commercial credit, Right. Eventually, you had consumer credit bureaus, which just sort of expanded this model out to anyone who buys anything in the marketplace, so just everyone. And that's sort of the beginning of the credit bureaus we see today. Um, Experian, for instance, um, you know, all those places that give you your free credit score. Uh, and 
they eventually like the the consumer credit bureaus eventually became so much like they had so much information on people um and it was it became so burdensome to people who had wrong information in their files for instance mm -hmm. um that there had to be legislation enacted in order to to sort of counter these sort of giant monolithic bureaucracies that were kind of like actually ruining people's lives. And so, and so what is, what does the legislation entail? Or what did that legislation entail? When did it come about? And, and... The Fair Credit Reporting Act, mm -hmm. um, it was enacted in the seventies and um, the sort of premise of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, this is kind of interesting. So I think for you and for me and for a lot of people, the problem with this kind of, you know, like a, a private company keeping dossiers on people is that the dossiers exist, right? Like it's, that's the problem that I have with it, right? Like that's the part that creeps me out. Um, but mm -hmm. the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the premise of that is that the problem is not that the dossier exists, but there, there might be wrong information in it. Right. Um, so for instance, like uh, it gives you right like you know the right to request your file and correct the information um it also like prevents certain kinds of information from being used because um prior to to sort of the late 20th century um and this this began to change just as a norms thing too they would use all kinds of information so it would be like Oh, did you leave your wife for a prostitute um are you black are you a woman are you um uh, they would they would have stuff about like your sexual proclivities. They would have, uh, they would have stuff about whether or not you drank or gambled. Um, so, yeah, like I mean, it's kind of it's it's a good thing we don't have that anymore, um, and that that's certainly changed. But um, these companies do still collect like a lot of information about right. us. Right, and I mean, there's obviously lots of talk now about you know if there are mistakes in your credit report, how much how much damage that can do, and that that still happens today um yeah. and you know and, and speaking about that right so i mentioned in the opening the the supreme court lawsuit which was the um robbins versus spokio mm -hmm. the sort of quick summary being right that spokio is i guess a people search engine you can search yeah. and and find information about people and this guy robbins i forget his first name um was like thomas or something yeah Starts with a T. It's probably Thomas. Um, basically, his results were too good. Is sort of yeah. the, the short version of it. Yeah, uh, it was like he was more. It was better educated. He was like had more money. Like his sort of because Spokio was just sort of scraping and like right. guessing. It's because it, it's a it's um a tech service. Right. So it was just sort of guessing based on all this information out there, and it guessed that Robbins was way better than he actually was right um like from sort of you know the like a i guess kind of from a credit angle kind of from like an employment angle like yeah. they, just, they had this yeah they had this database yeah um, his and i mean his main concern or complaint was that basically because of that it was making it harder for him to find entry-level jobs because people mm -hmm. would, would look him up through this and and find him to be too qualified or overqualified yeah. Um, and so that was kind of the harm that, that he alleged. Um, and the, the Supreme Court case itself sort of revolved around whether or not, like, sort of 
to some extent, whether or not you needed to show um, specific harm in order to have yeah. standing, right? Because in- injury, in fact, yeah, right. Because you know, and, and this is one of the issues in in lots of different privacy issues, like data breach law. You have the same same sort of thing, where it's often very difficult to show like concrete harm or injury, um, and therefore there's a question of whether or not you can sue over the privacy violation without without the harm mm-hmm. um and so and and i guess just to to close out the specifics on the robbins versus spokio case the supreme court um ruling more or less said that um that the the appeals court um you know successfully saw that that there was what was it it's it's particular uh and concrete were the two issues right he had to show particular harm and then concrete harm and the particular was that it impacted him um i I think that was basically the description and the but the concrete harm was was what was the actual damages to him and it couldn't just be that it violated the fcra law Mm -hmm. and so they sent it back to the appeals court to sort of review that and see whether or not um you know, he showed enough evidence to show concrete harm impacting himself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually haven't read the case yet. <laughs> You've it's been busy. Been a, it's been a hard week, yeah. Um, so I mean, that, can, I, can I ask kind of yeah. like the man on the street, not yes. a lawyer question? <laughs> That's your job here. <laughs> um, so so my understanding of what, just happened, what you described, right, was that people didn't want to hire this guy because he was too experienced. That's what he claims. Right, and but he was... He did have more experience than people. What people wanted, right? Is that no? Like it's it. Like I completely understand the case where there's information that's incorrect about a person and the well, bureaucracy. No, this yeah, is the, this is incorrect. The information was incorrect. Oh, so he yeah. was not too experienced. He was not that yeah. experienced, and he. Oh, okay. So the, the the information in there was that he was much older and that he was married and established and had two children Got and it. had more money and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think it, I I don't know exactly, but I think he was sort okay. of maybe in his twenties or something, and it said he was in his fifties and more established. Okay. And he was trying to get like an entry level job. Well, that I get. Right. Okay. But if he if if the information was correct and it were factual would he would he have also have a case no is that okay i don't think so i don't know sarah um i mean it if you could right if you could prove the thing it's uh it's weird right Right, i mean the the whole there's a whole other thing also as to whether or not spokio is (laughs) actually a credit reporting right entity that's do they qualify and in fact I, think, I mean, Spokio says they don't, and I think the the issue just wasn't raised in the Supreme Court. I think that's still like right. an issue in the case. Um, but yeah, like, and I think Spokio I think you even think so. you even had in one of the articles that now like Spokio includes like a note on each search result saying this is not for like for the report for purposes of credit reporting. Right. Yeah. yeah, which is like, oh yeah, sure, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's not how it works. <laughs> right, right away, the law that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, I, I do have another question here in terms of like the credit stuff. So there are, there are new startups like, you know, SoFi and Ernest that are supposedly right. using other signals to maybe assess credit risk. Mm-hmm. Would they be in violation of, of these fair, if you're kind of making your own credit score or, or credit assessment? Um, um, I'm not an expert on, uh, FCRA, but it, it seems like depending on exactly what they're doing, they could be. And it could it could even be that 
they're not violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's like they've decided, oh yeah, no, this applies to us and we're going to comply with all of these requirements. It could be that also. So I like I don't know what the fact, exact facts are. You know, it, it would be a it would be a pretty interesting question because the FCRA pretty clearly says you can't um, report certain things in a credit report or take account of certain kinds of information in the FCRA. Yeah. And and um, if if their algorithms um, happen to produce a result with it, which is let's say whatever the result is is not necessarily strongly correlated with but beyond that identical to the occurrence of some other signal let's say for example um let's say divorce is correlated with uh, certain bad credit outcomes right and they produce a signal that essentially is a hundred percent predictor of divorce then i really think that them outputting and making that signal available even if they gathered it through some other means other than examining the marriage record i think that would probably violate the FCRA, but it, uh, I mean, it's it's really like given the nature of of scraping and these sort of algorithmic solutions, I think that it raises all kinds of questions about how the FCRA is going to be applied in in the new era, right? Yeah. Like like even like in the example you give, like they know where all their inputs are coming from. I don't think that's the case with a lot of these services. Like I don't think. You know, I don't think they're keeping track exactly of where each little piece of data is coming in from. Hmm. So, like, because they're, you know, they're ta- they're pulling huge amounts of information from different sources, and those sources right. are also pulling information from God knows where. I mean, this is so, the promise of big data, right? Like, you take yeah. all of these signals, I mean, exactly, and you process them into one magic score, right? Um, and and I, I mean, to some extent, though, this 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 brings up. Uh, a semi-related issue, and this wasn't a path I intended to go down, but but as we're talking about it, I'm thinking about it, like the whole right to be forgotten issue yeah. in Europe is sort of based it or, is. You it know, absolutely off, is. off of this, this same idea, and there the argument is that the search results that Google um, gives when you put in you know a name is effectively a form of a credit report. Mm-hmm. You know, I, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and, the the case at issue is um is this guy had like a news story about him that was about like how he had just suffered this huge financial loss and that was like on the front page of his Google results for yeah. forever and so he was like having a hard time um getting business or deals or whatever and Right. Yeah, he got that thing yanked because yeah, it but, it is it does function. I don't know. It, report. it happened. <laughs> right. It, it yeah, it did. But he was like, it was like ten years. It Just, was it had sure, been like ten years and stuff. Yeah. And people should be able to be like, yeah, it was ten years ago. I don't know. Yeah. No, and I mean, am I being too harsh on, on no, this right to be forgotten I mean, thing? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like it it, it would have been different if it had been on page two, right? Yeah. Like, there's there's they would have made a huge difference and. And that feels weird. Like all, everything about that does feel a little weird. I'm not saying that, like, you maybe know, we're the too government as a society. I right? mean, like... maybe I'm not saying maybe the government should have the ability to silence yeah. search engines, right? right? But it's it still feels odd, right, that these things are able to linger in public like that. I, I don't. I don't think I agree with that. I, I think you know, for most of human history, your the facts about what you've done reputationally in your small town or your small village stuck with you for life. And that was an incentive for you to essentially be a fair player. And I think um, as people went into cities and there was opportunity to do something nefarious in one part of your life and then anonymize yourself in the masses and then 
perhaps, you know, leave that behind and perhaps do something nefarious again. It became a possibility. And, you know, at least in the age of sale, people would swindle people in one town and then go to another town and swindle another bunch of people. And the thing is, is, you know, we we see it. This is, I think, a, it's not a uniquely American thing, but I think it's a it's a pretty recent phenomenon that we believe that um, that people should not have the right to find out about other people and make up their own minds, but rather that somehow society and the courts and the government should hide certain facts about other people and not even give it to us and allow us to make up our own minds, but they should be somehow protected from what they've done in the past. And I'm, you know, sometimes I'm in split minds about this because I don't necessarily want everything that I've ever done to be on the front page. <laughs> However, in, in a society where everybody that is the case, right? Uh, I believe we would uh, essentially as a society evolve to be a little bit more forgiving. And I think, I think Masnick, I don't know if it was you or Dennis that brought up this point in a previous podcast where we talked about the fact that in the future, everybody that's available to be elected to office, you know, for president or congressman or whatever, will have at least one <laughs> dick pic or whatever you want to call it, something em embarrassing out there. And we'll just, we're essentially stop considering that as a disqualifying thing. And I think similarly for businessmen, you know, going out of business once 10 years ago won't be that, uh, won't be considered that bad a thing yeah. you know and i think we just have to evolve to get to that point and we i i think it also gets very difficult when we start saying like look we're going to try to sort information into grades and say certain information we're not even going to give it to people right like i think that becomes that that can become a very invasive thing because the standards are weird people can get dragged to courts for for pretty innocuous things yeah right? but we do this for like medical records and stuff like that and like attorney client privilege i like i don't think that it's really that bad to do that i the thing with the right to be forgotten and for the credit bureaus and all of this stuff is not so much that now we know things about people, it's that we know things about people in a centralized database that's controlled by this bureaucracy that's keeping tabs on everyone through a massive what seems like a surveillance mechanism. In the case of the credit bureaus, it absolutely is a surveillance mechanism. In the case of Google, arguably a surveillance mechanism. Uh, and I think that if we had like a people rating system that was run by the government, you would not like that. Just because it's run by corporations, by private entities, doesn't mean that it's, you know, any less creepy. Well, let, let me put it a different way. Let's say um, someone creates a Yelp for people, right? And it's very decentralized. It's peer to peer. It's like a Nutella for people, right? Um, where you your reputation goes on to this distributed network. Maybe it's like uh, stored on a blockchain, right? So no one entity, no one government. Well, how are you going it. to? How are you going to verify identities then? Oh, there's lots of different ways. No, of there, that. there, I, there aren't. Not when you're looking at a distributed thing. Not like when you're looking at no, the no, very concept of identity as no, no, it arises in American society. It's centralized. It actually starts with the credit bureaus. Well, it's very much a centralized concept. Well, I'm not. Well, that, that you're. Let's say. The blockchain doesn't store, uh, I'm not talking about reputations of the users on the blockchain, but rather reputations of specific names, right, of real world people. So, for example, yeah, you and were, you're going to have to track them through um, a centralized mechanism, like no, the not government necessarily. You don't, you don't or have a to. credit bureau. Like, no, it's like the why, why concept would you have of to? a person as an identity. Is no, let, let me give an example. By bureaus and by governments. No, and that's the way. Security administration. That's it, the way. It, like identities, people as identities didn't exist before these agencies did. 
let me give you an example and a concrete example. If you if you have a name connected with a reputation score, just those two pieces of data, right, in a blockchain, right, and you want to know about a particular person, right, you look up their name in this database, right, and if you say, oh, well, names aren't unique, well, fine, it'll be a name plus some number that's unique to that network. Like, for example, on Reddit, you have a username that's unique, right? So something like that on the network, which would have a reputation attached to it. Right? So that kind of a thing in a blockchain is completely decentralized. Now you can make the argument, well, hey, you know, that I don't care about that because someone can't associate me with a particular unique ID that's stored in this blockchain. Well, the thing is, if you want to transact on that network, it certainly does matter, right? Because all your friends, etc., are connected to that identity, right? So it, it matters in the same sense that your reputation matters on Reddit. Oh, and by the way, if at any time you connect a, a photo and it's cryptographically linked to that ID, well, then now you're, the way you look is also you know, connected to that particular identity on the network. And someone can do an image search to see when you try to do a transaction in the real world, no, whether that, you have a reputation on the network, right? Right, but your reputation is, like you just said, only on that network, right? And to connect yeah. that reputation to that real world person or any no, other, or, or, or any other similar identity on a different network would be difficult well, to do. Well, here's how you connect it in the saying. real world, all right? Let's say, Dennis, you want to do a transaction with me. Mm -hmm. Prior to doing the transaction, I'll ask you to give me your ID on the network. Right. Or, or a key. So let's say you're yeah. or a key or something like or that. A public and, key. You, and if you refuse to give me an ID on the network, I'll say, well, why? If this is a ubiquitous network, why don't you have an ID? Or even going beyond that, the network could be keyed to something biometric like that's unique, like a retina or a fingerprint. And I could look you up. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, regardless. And how, and how is this not creepy? How is this not like <laughs> no. really fucking creepy? How is this not a dystopia? It's well, what, just like, <laughs> convince well, me this is not dystopia. Well, what I'm saying is you, you don't have a choice is what I'm saying because it's, it's decentralized, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. So, so, yes, it is. Convince me this is not dystopia. It, it, it well, is well, dystopia, but it's coming anyways. Yeah, exactly. It's, since I mean, it's decentralized, it's, you can't like, do anything not, about it. It's, we don't have a blockchain that works right now. No, like it's, it's like no it is true like it is true bitcoin is is dead like it's no, functionally dead right no, now no, no, it's it is paralyzed because you're of, confounding of the block two things. size debates and it's the only blockchain that has no, any potential at the moment you're, it's, you're, you're confounding two things no it's like bitcoin bitcoin as a currency truth. no it's, bitcoin as a currency is not working, but the blockchain technology works just fine in fact oh the you, technology you, is fine in that it it's like the code is in a repository somewhere and there's proof of work, but it doesn't mean uh, that like you're, you're sort of saying that it's in, this is an inevitable future, but that's like saying Google Glass is an inevitable future. No, no one's wearing Google Glass anymore. This is like not going to, it's not happening. People saw it. They didn't like it. It didn't take off. It's just it's gone. Like it might be a great technology, but if people don't work with it if you know there's a thousand things that go wrong with every technology and in this case a thousand things did go wrong and i don't and blockchain isn't going to take off it's this is not an That's... inevitable tech you're basically creating <laughs> you're creating a hypo and it's dystopian and okay, you haven't convinced even, it, me of anything whether you haven't convinced me it's going to happen be... and you haven't convinced me that it's a good thing well okay so let, let's say let's say a couple of different things so let's keep the whether it's a good thing or a bad thing on two different things but you know, you don't even have to say that the 
blockchain has to be technology in order to see that there will be decentralized databases with information in them that won't be in the U.S. jurisdiction, right? Um, which won't necessarily be in the jurisdiction of the European Union or somewhere where you can reach with laws, right? I mean, just like we have, like our copyright laws are pretty Who, strict. Where, and, and why are people going to be contributing to these decentralized databases? In the same way they, they contribute to uh, databases of copyright violating material, in the same way they contribute to databases of hacks, credit card numbers, right? If there, if give, there's give a market, give some examples of these databases. Like, for example, the, uh, you know, the database of credit card numbers you can get on the Tor network, right? Like there's something like uh, 50 million credit card numbers that are up for sale. Uh, let's our databases of movies. There's like a lot of them, right? There's like uh, popcorn time movies. There's what news groups themselves. There's like there's like a million different copyright yeah. uh, repositories, right? So people contribute to it if other people want the information. And in fact, I guarantee you. Somewhere out there, out of all these medical so you're, hacks, you're basically uh, a pro like proposing that personal information is valuable the way that credit card information is. It, it actually, like, I mean, it, you're really like this is you're really it, not. I'll tell you why it is. It's it's valuable if it is information of the sort we've been discussing that has to do with reputation. Uh, that is that is predictive of some kind of uh, I mean, financial. How, you could, how are you could these? Argue, how is this information going to be more valuable than, say, a credit card number or a social security number? Well, it doesn't well, have to be more valuable. Here, right. I mean, yeah, because it does. Because it's there's an opportunity cost here, and well, uh, why but, would you post <laughs> Yelp for people? Why would you want Yelp for people? Like, why would you spend your time doing that when you could just get someone's credit card information? Well, I, I mean, think... if you're talking about like decentralized networks and Tor and like things that are beyond U.S. jurisdiction, why go through all that trouble to deal with something that is honestly not as interesting as a social security number? I, I think. A... I think. Well, hold on. Let me let me jump in. And I, I think. I can see both of your points, um, and but I don't know if I'm going to be able to bridge them here. <laughs> but the I, I think there is a point that Hirsch is making that that does seem valid to me, which is that there there could be scenarios that I could see in the same way that you know those original credit bureaus that you were talking about from the 19th century became valuable because people needed some sort of repository of that information in order to do certain kinds of transactions. You could see scenarios arising where the same kind of thing would happen for sort of the, the reputational information exactly. online. And so I could see where that could rise up. You know, whether that's good or bad is a, is a different question. And I agree, it's it could be pretty scary. Um, and, you know, so far, all of the attempts to kind of do these things. And to be clear, I'm not saying that I want that to happen. I'm just saying it feels kind of inevitable given I mean, how... It, we already have... We have credit agencies. Like it's not like the credit right, agencies they, ever went away. No, but, but we all have credit scores. We have files. These are being maintained not just by you know companies that are that fall clearly under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but we like Facebook can probably predict stuff about me, like financial stuff about me, really well. They can probably predict a bunch of stuff about me really well. It's like these are all centralized entities. They've got a head start. Sure. And it's like, it is really, I don't really see how it's inevitable okay, that there's so, going to be some decentralized thing that happens so, so let me, at let, all. Let, let me, let, I, there's, there's, there's another point in this that I actually think ties back to this that I, that I did want to get to before we ran out of time. And, and that does get back to the, 
the question of the centralized payment processor, which I talked about at the very, very beginning of the introduction, and sort of how the centralized payment processor has become this sort of choke point, and um, that you know people are using them to kind of cut people off, right? And so you could see an argument where that that same issue, where the increasing concerns about a centralized choke point, leads people to look at more distributed solutions, and that will include both for payment and for reputation. Right. And it, and it is like in this sort of current system, if you do have bad credit, you're going to, I mean, there's, there's actually a private blacklist that gets shared by a lot of credit unions and banks. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what the name is, but like you end up on that list and you can't open a bank account you're or a credit screwed. union account. Yeah, right. you're shut out of the system. And it's like, and sure, like there isn't a single, um, it's not like we have one bank in the United States, right? right? We have like a lot of entities, they're private, but they form a network. And when you're shut out of all of them because they're using the same block, like blacklist, like you don't, you're, you're shut out of the financial system. And yeah. it's, it's, I just want to say that you've scary. just, you've just described a piece of data of exactly the type I was talking about that would be extremely valuable to have if you were starting a new credit card company. Right. And there's, there's similar data like that, that would be extremely valuable to someone leasing cars and there's similar data like that that would be useful to someone who just um, I mean know. the data already exists and is being distributed and sold and there it's centralized it's already it, centralized it's owned by corporations people are making money off of it there but is it's not and it's it, not it as is, good as it could be right I mean it, it's like how is a decentralized repository going to be well, like any better I mean it's well, not it's not going to be because we see what decentralized repositories are like it's this data isn't very good it does harm people and it, it's just an information problem that's out of control like you you I think are assuming I, that when I say that this is bad that the government like I like I think the government is going to crack down on it. I don't think the government is going to crack down on it. I think this problem is just going to get more and more out of control yeah. and it's going to be absolutely centralized. It's going to be in the hands of these for-profit corporations and we're basically going to be living in snow crash like it <laughs> in well, like 5 it, years. It's I, that so you agree with me it's inevitable but uh no but, but it's what i'm agreeing is inevitable is like i'm not agreeing with you because what i think is inevitable isn't decentralization <laughs> it's, it's centralization the, the centralized it's absolutely centralization which is the opposite so both the your, exact opposite well let, let, but both let of you are me, discussing dystopians <laughs> yeah yeah exactly Futures, but but yeah. it's, it's actually yeah it's actually yeah but i want to stop the dystopian future but how but that brings up the question of how my 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 scenario only comes about if there is successful legislation which controls the centralized actors. You're right, if the centralized actors have full freedom to use any signals they want to get the most accurate picture of anyone uh, without any legislative sort of uh, shackles, then you're right. I mean, then it's then it's your scenario. And I 100% agree with that. I'm only saying that in the situation where we succeed as citizens in constraining the ability of corporations to act only in that scenario does it become interesting you're, for these you're for assuming these people that the, the verboten information that the or rather you know like for instance the fact that alexa is not allowed to snoop on me is going to make it so that whatever rating that amazon gives me is somehow less accurate like that's what you're assuming you're assuming that yeah, yeah. the you're assuming, you're assuming that like the taken of surveilled information 
makes things less accurate and that's not the case that's not like we no, know that we know that from nsa snooping we know that from just the general shape of big no, data the more data there is actually the more obscured the picture gets and so you're you're, no, you're, you're confounding two assumption no you're, no you're confounding two things and i'll tell you why i'm talking about the sort of thing where for example a nation state tells google that you have to forget certain facts about a person right and 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 and, and, and an entity that's outside the purview of the state continues to remember those facts, right? That's the sort of things I'm talking about. So when does it become useful to have a black market of individual information? It becomes useful when states are able to command Google as they have, or able to command Amazon, or able to command um, rec credit reporting agencies that they must forget certain facts about people. Not that they couldn't figure it out at some point. For it's their own, valuable very in a market if it has predictive value. And if it doesn't have predictive value, then there's not going to be a real market for it, except like out of uh, prurient interest. And I guess there's value in that. But like what we were talking about was like, you know, the ability to do business with each other. You know, we're talking about a but, it, but if, it, if it has no predictive value whatsoever, then then shouldn't the regular market for it collapse as well? Exactly. The regular market for it? The existing market for. for I mean, maybe it should. But it's like, <laughs> but it's not right. So, so it's not because it, like so much of it is shrouded in secrecy, right? If we're talking about decentralized databases and stuff, then it's like no longer we're not looking at Experian anymore. So, we're not but, looking but is, at like the is, Experian but is, uh, is, military right. complex. But it's part of the argument that that this information has no predictive value, but nobody nobody understands that enough to actually make the market for a collapse, and therefore it continues. Maybe that's it. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's like you're always. Right, like, why is it that NSA snooping keeps expanding and expanding and expanding? It's always like the fear of what's behind that black box, right, sure. or what's within but, the black but box. But I think, I think, I think the NSA snooping is slightly different, right? I mean, really? I, I agree that there there are similarities, but I think that that there's a difference in terms of the degree, in terms of what kinds of things you're looking for in those two. Oh yeah, I mean, the, there's qualitative sort of differences, sets, right? There's absolutely qualitative differences. What I'm talking about is like the psychology okay. of information that, gathering. That I agree. Right? I, I don't disagree with that. But, you know, but I, but I think that, you know, I, I think that there, there's that a lot of people and companies certainly see some value in the credit data and that when you do have more data, that there is an argument that the picture actually gets clearer for the kinds of information that they're trying to get out of that database. A little bit. I mean, the thing is, I think that we, we really want data to be meaningful and sure. and and sure it's like if someone has like a credit report that's like 50 pages long with like big red letters everywhere you know i i'm not i'm gonna say yeah actually that data is probably good as far as like a risk assessment is concerned right but it's all the people in the middle sure. that you're it's like it's a little it's more uncertain you're never gonna have right like well, first of all, you're never going to have perfect knowledge. But I also think that in a lot of these cases, you're just not going to have um, much knowledge at all. And I think that's certainly the case with the information that's being gathered by really anyone who runs ads, right? Anyone who runs on this data ad model. And it's, it's really like this is just a whole other thing where so much of the internet is based on this illusory belief that data is valuable, that it has sure. predictive value. And we're just yep. investing our expectations into it and it becomes a false coin of yeah. the internet. And, and, and I mean, and you know, I've discussed this at, at 
you know, at great length. Like I agree. I mean, I think you know everyone gets so focused on the data, and as soon as they have some data, you know, as soon as you can put a number on something, you know, one, you start to optimize for those numbers, and and two, you start to believe that, you know, that because there's a number that it, it it's more accurate than it really is, and and I think that's a problem. And I've I, said, I love data, but but, but there are some people <laughs> like Dennis who, who are big fans of data. But but I I think I think it's it is a step. There is a step. There's a big leap between saying that like all the data you know that's collected is useless or oh yeah, know. I don't think it's absolutely useless. I just think that it's highly overrated. It, it there's like yeah the the market should probably collapse. But yeah, but then you know, there should be an opportunity. It's a bubble. Yeah. It's a right. bubble, but 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 again, if it is a bubble, and if the data is really not as valuable as people say, then then that, yeah. you know, again, that that market should collapse, right? And and you know, there there may be. Issues. I think there's a lot of markets that should collapse that <laughs> well, aren't, go aren't going to for various reasons. But it, it, in this case, I think sort of the argument here is that you know, for various market failure reasons, the market for data hasn't collapsed, and. Um, but the point is that this data isn't that valuable. And once you take it out of the context in which like this market is propped up, it's like, you're not going to see the kind of demand that mm -hmm. you might assume based on, you know, the fact that Experian exists. Right. I, I, you, I think you're making a, like a really strong assertion about this data that isn't necessarily true. Right. I mean, just come, it comes to mind that there's like a lot of data, especially in the medical realm, about people that data that's not allowed to be shared and used by insurers that would be very valuable to an insurer that just doesn't follow those rules, right? Or that that if in, if, if some black market company takes these uh, signals that aren't allowed to be used currently, and like for example, that have to do with like pre-existing conditions or genetic markers or things like that or family history, to compute a, a score of whether or not you should take a particular person under your insurance. And then just sells it as a service, um, you know, it, it, medical providers in, in jurisdictions that aren't controlled by the, like, you know, these laws like the EU or the United States. I mean, they, I think they would really want that kind of information. And that's just one kind of information. How would you collect that information? How would they get it? Yeah. I mean, like, how would you collect it in the first well, place? In, well, in the it, future, it, there's like a lot of ways. I mean, they can hack a database. No, no. Can, Why is it in the database if the person who's being insured lives in a jurisdiction where they don't have laws regarding the collection of that information. No, no, I mean like a U.S. citizen, right? Like the fact that- Yeah, but why is, so why is the U.S. citizen being covered by a, like a medical provider that's outside of U.S. jurisdiction? You know, people do medical tourism, people uh, fund- I think, I think your, your hypo isn't working here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I mean, you're asserting that it isn't, but I'm giving you for each point. I'm giving you an example of a of a thing that. I mean, I think that the listeners can make up their minds about that. I think I'm, I'm not going to engage with this anymore. So, all right, all right. So, so we're we're way beyond our, our normal amount of time. <laughs> but anyway, this is fun. This is this is quite a lot of fun, actually, in a few different ways. Uh, and and um, I, I actually do have a bunch of follow up questions, but but we are over time. So what I'm going to do though is is Sarah, I'm going to give you the final word here, and uh, um, you can ignore this question if you want and and respond to something else that her said that made you angry or whatever <laughs> if you want. But but I mean, do you have, I mean, do you have a solution? I mean, or or any you know any suggestion towards a solution to to your concerns on these things. I mean, I would really like to see an update to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but for me, the reason why I wrote these four pieces was actually that 
the common thread I see in a lot of these examples, um, particularly in the example of the uh, rent-to-own laptops that mm -hmm. had the spyware installed on them, is that particularly in America, we treat debtors as somehow less, as as less deserving of privacy, as less deserving of dignity, like that we like these lenders assume that they can put a camera into someone's bedroom through an object just because the object isn't owned by that person yet. And, you know, that's also the case with cars that have GPS installed in them by, by the, you know, the subprime lender so that they can track where the car is and like right. seize it. And, um, I, I really wanted to sort of prompt for people this, you know, to think hard about giving debtors dignity or giving even indigent people dignity. I, I talked also about sex workers and, and um, EBT in one of my pieces um, and how there's sort of this expanding surveillance network around payments that particularly uh, affects, um, you know, like less privileged people. Mm -hmm. And I really just want people to see this and sort of know that like the next big privacy violation, like the next big thing that's coming is going to get tested on poor people, on debtors first, and then it's going to come at the rest of us. And that, you know, you, we've got to watch out for that and also treat people as human beings, even when they don't own things or when they owe things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as I said, I think it's, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that, um, you know, is, is worth thinking about and obviously worth discussing and apparently arguing about. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so, um, I, I think it's a really interesting discussion. I think it's, it's definitely worth reading those four pieces. We'll link to them obviously in the show notes, um, with this podcast when it goes up. Um, but again, we're, we're way over time, but Sarah will definitely have you back again at some point, uh, <laughs> to, to, um, I guess, continue fighting with Hirsch. Is, <laughs> uh, we'll do that. So, um, but, but thank you for joining us and, and Dennis and Hirsch, thank you as always. And, uh, everyone who's listening, thank you as well. And, uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks guys. Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tap.